Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves! Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello there, Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations, where my regular partner, Dr Maria Taflaga, is both a lecturer and director of the Centre for the Study of Australian Politics. Hi there, Maria. Hello, how are you? Now that the coalition has snapped out of its snapback habit, there's a broad acceptance that the way many of us work and the very contours of the economy will be different after all this. And by different, I mean leaner. Business owners are preparing for smaller payrolls if they're lucky enough to survive at all. Right across the economy, enterprises are going back to tours, thinking about their original purpose and stripping away non-core functions to contain costs and minimise risk. And of course, there's the digital fixes they've been forced to adopt in this crisis, which will in many cases remain part of their post-COVID business models. Think online ordering from restaurants, pharmacies, grocery stores, and of course, widespread working from home, Zoom meetings and the like. All of which suggests that the expected 1.7 million people on the beefed-up job seeker payment, and even some of the 3.3 million people on the finite job keeper wage subsidy, will not be getting their hours back, perhaps any hours at all. Before I introduce our other guests, can I quickly note that Sunday, May 3, was World Press Freedom Day. Last week, journalist Sapir Mehron from the Samoan Observer sought my comment about Australia's slide down the press freedom rankings behind Samoa and many other countries. We'll definitely look at this issue in greater detail in a podcast to come, but transparency, a concept Australian officialdom wrestles with more than most, is in our sights today anyway. Miranda Stewart wants to see greater budget transparency. She is a professor at the University of Melbourne and a fellow at the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute at ANU's Crawford School. Welcome, Miranda. Hello. How are you? Well, thank you. And ANU's Professor Bruce Chapman is one of Australia's best-known economists who, among other things, was responsible for the motivation and design of HEX, the Higher Education Contribution Scheme, in the late 1980s. And he's recently co-authored a paper with John Piggott looking at how we might manage the end of JobKeeper assistance in five months or so. So welcome to you, Bruce. Thanks very much, Mark. Now, Miranda, let's go to you first uh, and talk about this idea of, or what the Russians used to call glasnost, the idea of openness and transparency in budgeting. You've called for a greater openness in budgeting, uh, and you say it's especially needed at this time with all this emergency spending. Can you just talk to that for a moment? So uh, 
budgeting is uh, really our main regular political process by which we reach consensus on on taxing and spending, on the financing of government. And uh, it's therefore critical uh, in a constitutional democracy such as Australia or indeed in any society, no matter what the politics of that, that that budgeting be uh, legitimate, transparent, uh, open and uh, predictable, uh, stable. Uh, of course, in a crisis, all of that is uh, subject to upheaval. Uh, and we've seen an upheaval here in Australia and globally uh, in budget processes. We've seen the deferment of, of the budget timing. We've seen uh, massive um, you know, emergency appropriations being made, tax changes and retargeting of expenditure in taxing and, and spending agencies and the big fiscal stimulus to businesses at JobKeeper and JobSeeker. So all of this has happened in a, in a hurry, which obviously we need, uh, but now is the time to really set ourselves back onto a, a more stable and transparent path for, for public engagement. In the recovery, yeah. So you've uh, talked about the Open Budget Survey of 2019. What what are the main findings of that? So the Open Budget Survey is a, a happens every two years. It's run by an international non government associate uh, organisation. This year, it surveyed 117 countries around the world, uh, covering 90 percent of the global population. It's the second year for Australia being included in the survey and uh, myself and another researcher, Tak Chi Wong at Tax and Transfer Policy Institute, have done the survey for Australia. Uh, We find, of course, Australia has good budget institutions, good and regular public reporting and budget oversight by our Australian National Auditor. The goal is to make sure that we don't lose that regularity of public transparency. In fact, the government has been extremely good uh, in being transparent about the health response, the response to the health crisis and COVID. And what we want to make sure is that that transparency continues in its economic and fiscal response. These are obviously very unusual times, as you were just saying, uh, with all this emergency spending, and I guess that's exacerbated by a concomitant uh, drop in in government revenues from things like company tax and and income tax, with the uh, labour market, with the you know the, the number of employed Australians actually going backwards. Um, so, why is it important? now like to to really understand what it is that government is looking at i noticed for example when uh the first stimulus package came out the 17.6 billion dollar uh tranche one i guess we'd call it of of stimulus that the government came up with there were a lot of calls at the time for particularly by economists to see the government's workings to see the projections that Treasury had for, or predictions, I guess they were for, uh, for the economy and the various parameters of the budget. Um, and yet the government didn't furnish those. Uh, some people, I think, quite understandably made the point that it was just such a, an unknown set of circumstances, so many variables that those kind of predictions, uh, would be, uh, you know, just huge, hugely kind of based on guesswork. But it is very important, you say, for us to understand the basis of decisions now so that perhaps we can make judgments about them later. Is that is that right? I think it is right. It's important that we need to understand the basis. That doesn't mean that 
government needs to reveal all of the inside of the sausage, uh, so to speak, um, all of that modelling. A lot of it is very kind of experimental and uncertain. Um, uh, in response to your previous question, of course, Australia does well in transparency. We rank eighth out of 117 countries. We rank ahead of the US and the UK, for example, although behind New Zealand uh, on transparency. Um, but Behind what- Mexico and Georgia, and is, is that right? Well, indeed. So uh, one of the things about the Open Budget Index is that it's a real, um, it's a really kind of, in a way, the lowest common denominator. It is the core budget documents being released to the public in a timely fashion, you know, with good oversight. Um, it doesn't necessarily get us into the nitty gritty of of the detail of how the government really is managing an economic and fiscal crisis like this. Does it go, does it go to how good those documents are? I mean, let, let's just for, for the sake of clarity for our listeners. I mean, we're talking about obviously the budget, but things like the mid year economic uh, and fiscal outlook, the end of year budget report, um, subsidiary, uh, I, I guess, budgets within that, like a women's budget. Are these the sorts of documents you're talking about? And it's the quality quality of those documents that's important as well, presumably. Uh, yes, so that is the there are there are sort of eight core documents. Uh, the, the the only core document that, that that the index measures, the only core document that Australia does not publish actually is what we call a pre-budget statement, um, which is in uh, in some countries is tabled uh, in the legislature, released to the public to have debate about budget priorities before the budget is actually released. We have never done that, although we do have some rather targeted consultation before a budget. In fact, the the May economic statement that's coming up uh, before our October scheduled budget might uh, might help us uh, in that. It's not just about quality in the sense that you want the numbers to be accurate uh, in that budget and, and audited and carefully constructed. You also want comprehensiveness. So we want a reporting of all the, f- the fiscal and economic activities of the government, as well as its strategy and distributional effect. So as I say, Australia does perform well, and we would just be looking to Australia to continue to lead. Uh, internationally in in those good processes. For COVID-19, I think what we want is not so much every single internal model. What we want is that the government engages the public in its decision-making process, puts forward exactly what it is that it wants to do, leads us, doesn't just describe the the crisis, but tells us what it wants to do about it in fiscal policy, and then seeks to build that support and consensus. And that that is that political process is what budgeting is about. Can I ask, Miranda, is um, is one of the reasons why New Zealand is ahead of us? Is that because um, they have other sort of budgeting instruments like a sort of wellbeing index and I mean, is one of the reasons why we might not be doing as well as we could it, because we don't necessarily have a standard definition for what the poverty line is that is used by government? Are they related or are they different matters? Uh, so the wellbeing approach New Zealand has brought is is a bit different. One reason they are ahead of us, and you know, in terms of points on the scale, it's not very far ahead, uh, is because of this pre-budget consultative approach. Um, we do have to remember that New Zealand's political 
budget budgeting is linked directly to the political system, obviously, and they sort of have a multi-party uh, process in in their uni, unicam in their parliament, uh, which of course we have a federal system and we have you know by two two parties and opposition and so on a majority government. Uh, so. To some extent, we rely on our legislature to deliver the level of transparency uh, rather than on the executive. Um, but we want to make sure that the legislature has has complete uh, information from from the executive to to participate in that political debate. Bruce, do you have any thoughts on this question of transparency? Is it uh, an issue uh, as an economist that you've uh, worried about in the past? No, I haven't paid much attention to it, but I would just add... Uh, another point related to this, which is that this is a world, an economic world and a health world of great anxiety and in such a situation um, business investment will be down even irrespective of where we would be in terms of aggregate demand. But this is a time that um, certainty is called for and that's, that's one of the critical issues going into the next six to 12 months is that if business investment continues to be low and part of it is uncertainty and part of it can be traced to um, a non-optimal level of government transparency on the budget, then that can be, that can be important. I think we need to make sure that uh, the government, sh- the leadership of the government is supporting that certainty and is reassuring. One of the concerns I've had is we really, we've had a lot of leadership on the health crisis. We haven't yet had leadership on the fiscal and economic response as we move out of the crisis. Uh, the immediate fiscal response has been very impressive. One could critique it, uh, of course, but it's been impressive. But as we go forward, we need to know, are we going to be completely winding back? I don't think there's a going back pre-crisis. We need to have forward-looking strategy over the next short term and longer term. Yes, it's an interesting concept that I was talking to someone over the weekend, uh, who a former diplomat who was telling me about uh, the concept of post, post-disaster recovery and, and the concept of building back better, um, which is mostly about, I guess, physical infrastructure, but it's also about, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the governance, uh, the democratic systems and the, and the governance that we have and accountability in our systems. And I think it's a, it's a good way of looking at it. This is a crisis moment, but it's also a moment for reflecting on how well our systems are designed for handling this and, and how they might be improved for what is a different challenge going forward, isn't it? It's, it's, it's actually a, a different set of economic decisions, um, or objectives that you're trying to uh, design policy for in this, uh, in this recovery phase because the economy is, is essentially a different beast in a different phase of its, uh, of its life. Well, it certainly looks like that. So I wouldn't know, as an economist, I'll leave that to Bruce to to talk about. But but the role I see uh, it, for the government is to use the budget processes that we have that are effective, predictable and stable to reassure and to tell the population where it is going to be uh, supporting that investment. It's not a time for dramatic reform either. So it's not a time to necessarily go back as if nothing had happened, but nor is it a time for dramatic reform now. We need that pathway over the next two or three years. 
Well, that's an interesting observation to make because there are plenty of people who are saying that it is a time for dramatic reform. It's time when we should be looking at uh, the configuration of our tax system, uh, getting rid of uh, incentive uh, destroying taxes like uh, like land tax, uh, sorry, like uh, stamp duty, and and perhaps moving to land tax. Um, and uh, and and there's there's talk of broad based you know cash flow taxes these kinds of things. Uh, you, you don't think, Miranda, that uh, we should be going for that kind of root and branch approach. It should be more reassuring. Is that the suggestion you're, you're making? Well, I'd like to see us all, all of us academics and, and the, the thinkers inside government and, and people in different sectors to start to, to, to look ahead for that. Um, but that's not to say that we, we should go ahead and do such major changes or attempt them, you know, this year or next year. My, my advocacy would be more to keep supporting business investment. Um, Bruce will be talking, I guess, about ways to support both the investment and demand side by keeping that income uh, flowing um, and and to start that conversation for retargeting and actually taking the opportunities, for example, the digital opportunities that, that we have available for us. I mean, Maria, it just sort of worries me uh, just thinking about this that, you know, if we think back to the Henry Tax Review when there were so many recommendations made, uh, when the economy was in a lot more robust uh, health than it is now, uh, and we didn't have the stomach for it then, we do have uh, some level of, I think, you know, higher level of kind of community buy-in at the moment. We have a higher level of political cooperation at the moment as a result of this crisis, a sort of a sense of national purpose. It may be fleeting, but it is definitely here at the moment uh, more so than is normally the case. My sense is this is the kind of time when we ought to be looking to build on that and and make some changes that we've found impossible in normal sort of adversarial politics of the past. I think that is definitely the sort of zeitgeist of... um I guess particularly elite discourse, which this is one of those forums, um, that, you know, that uh, reforms that we have been arguing about and really failing to kind of take up that, you know, you should never waste a crisis. I guess to me um, what um, what sort of seems to be uh, kind of becoming apparent is we're sort of seeing signs of a return to politics as um, usual and I think the dispute over school openings with the federal government using its financial stick and its financial carrot as a point of leverage um, is sort of um, I guess a really classic sign of how federal state relations kind of run in this country uh, where the centre uses this tool to its advantage to try to get what it wants uh, and you sort of got the states resisting um, using their own kind of power and authority. And I guess what I don't really see, and perhaps this is sort of going to Miranda's point, is um, a way of starting a conversation to sort of build up a broader consensus about a future direction. Like what we kind of sort of see is everyone grabbing their bottom drawer of the things that they wanted to do before the crisis um, not necessarily thinking about what it actually, what actually the problems facing the economy are going to be, and what how our res- policy responses should be adapting to the 
new reality or the new terrain, if you want to think about it in that way, that we're actually sort of facing. And that doesn't mean that our political leaders are incapable of that. It could just be that they're transitioning. Um, but it doesn't seem that that kind of groundwork is necessarily being put in place right now. We've seen a welcome coming together uh, and listening to the expertise and, and, and a more or less a national strategic response. I agree there are some cracks appearing uh, on schools, for example, on the health response. I suppose the, the issue is that that's one thing that government is doing and we're just throwing everything at it. Uh, but Governments have to actually do multiple things at the same time and, and that's a much harder can of worms uh, that we have to kind of, the federal government has to show us that it can get back to that broader economic and fiscal management process. So I'm both cautious about big reform but wanting to kind of us to get ourselves ready to to, to move in that direction, let's say, in a few years, but also wanting to make sure we don't lose some things we already have. Uh, we're, we're not back in proper legislative business yet. Uh, Parliament's not sitting properly yet. We need to protect that democratic institution and we need to protect the role of our state governments, especially their fiscal bottom line is going to be very bad. They need security from the federal government, not... Um, hostility as we go forward. Yeah, that's a very good point. But I, I suppose what I'm really saying is that the, the, if, you, if, you, if you think about discourse, the, the government discourse before this crisis, it was very much about jobs and growth as a sort of rhetorical construct as much as anything else and balancing the budget. You know, the getting to a surplus was, you know, sort of four-fifths of its of its agenda really, having, having legislated the, the tax cuts quite early after the 2019 election. That that sort of you know that kind of fiscal uh, balance argument has just gone out the window. It's not an issue at the moment. It is long gone. Uh, the the issue now is protecting the economy. And to the government's credit, it has uh, you know thrown the switch to intervention with exactly that public policy objective. That will be the case for a substantial period into the future. The idea of balancing the budget, or or perhaps even pursuing. Uh, fiscal repair or budget repair in a, in an aggressive way would run entirely counter to those sorts of objectives. So the game has changed on the government quite considerably and it's a question of how it brings together the policy answers for that. Well, that's right. And, uh, you know, we are in a new world now, but I, I guess I'd be hopeful that the Morrison government can do it. But we, we haven't seen uh, enough... Um, indication of that yet uh, from Morrison and Frydenberg, I think. Maybe the economic yeah. statement next week will give us that. Yeah, it's pretty early days. I mean, uh, we're recording on a Monday. On Tuesday, Josh Frydenberg is addressing the National Press Club. It's actually one of the first things to happen physically at the National Press Club for some time. I think it's just going to be journos uh, there. I shall be there. But um, uh, we, we might get a bit more from him on, on the plans ahead. Miranda, before we go to a break, I just want to touch on one other aspect of transparency uh, that you've you've spoken about. And this, this is the idea of just transparency in other aspects of, of government activity, government financial activity. Um, you particularly single out, and I'm glad you have, uh, the sports rorts affair, the fact that the Australian National Audit Office found, you know, really uncovered that a whole bunch of uh, sport sporting organisations had been given grants when they hadn't met the criteria. And yet this really amounted to, it was certainly a big political storm and it certainly cost uh, 
a minister her job, uh, but really it, it, that was it. I mean, the government's position was essentially to sort of remain inscrutable about it and just stare it down, and that's pretty much where it's gone. Well, and and COVID nineteen has really um, <laughs> has really trumped uh, the sports rorts scandal, just as it's kind of almost trumped the bushfires. I mean, these things that happened two to three months ago, we've almost all forgotten about. There is a Senate inquiry going on into the sports rorts matter that um, is currently suspended, I think, or at least uh, hearings were suspended um, because of COVID nineteen. There are two things on which we get slightly bad marks in this open budget survey. The first is public participation in the budget, and that's linked to the fact that the executive government does not really publish a pre-budget statement permitting debate about its goals. Uh, the second is this issue of responding to our national auditor. So we have a fantastic, you know, we get we do very well on the Supreme Audit Institution. Um, Generally, the auditor produces a very impressive public reports, well substantiated and investigating different aspects of government expenditure and, and activity. Uh, the sports rorts inquiry was one of those. And um, the, 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 the bad mark we get is that we don't see uh, an explicit response we will do better, we will change the process. And one of the risks that is probably enhanced by the crisis, the COVID crisis, is a risk of more power into the executive. Um, we've seen this happening for some time now. Uh, and one way that that manifests itself is in executive or ministerial discretionary decisions about spending without proper legislative or public oversight and often in areas where really uh, the responsibility for that expenditure probably even lies with state governments and not with the feds. So that's where I would want us to keep that level of detailed scrutiny, keep revealing those things and trying to encourage the government to improve those processes for public accountability. Amen to that. Stick around after the break. We'll uh, delve a little bit more deeply into Bruce Chapman's suggestions about how we might uh, uh, transition from JobKeeper assistance and, and other aspects of the, uh, the post-COVID economy. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, the government's been widely praised for its crisis spending, as Miranda mentioned before, amounting to some $214 billion in six months, which is about 6% of annual GDP, and thus the largest wage subsidy in the world, if you measure it like that. 
But, of course, it, it's finite and it cannot and will not last. It's scheduled to end, I think, in September. So what happens then? Bruce Chapman, you've come up with uh, this idea. You've, uh, you're one of the originators of HEX, uh, the Higher, in- Higher Education Contribution Scheme, uh, which is an income contingent loan scheme. You're proposing a similar kind of idea for uh, transitioning from the JobKeeper program. Can you explain that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I've been working with John Piggott from the University of New South Wales. We're motivated by asking the question, what happens after JobKeeper stops, which will be in October? So we've got a a huge amount of money that's out there. And uh, I think just just about all of us would agree that it was incredibly important to get a lot of stimulus in some form out into the economy and that that's happened. There's no disagreement about that. The conversation really then has to be uh, when the money stops, and just think about this, if you're an employer now, you'll be getting uh, $1,500 per fortnight per employee who's been laid off or temporarily not at work, and that's a lot of money, and that might be uh, keeping some businesses, many perhaps businesses alive and hibernating, but what happens when it stops? Now, you could just say, oh, we'll just keep going. Well, the, the problem with just keep going is that it's just so hugely expensive for for future budgets in terms of tax and um, expenditure cuts. So we, John and I, John P and I, asked the question, is there a transition process which could perhaps keep the money there but in a way that doesn't damage the future budgets so severely or, in fact, possibly not at all. And it does come down to what's called an income contingent loan, although for business it would have to be revenue. I can explain that in a minute. And the, the way it works, if you just think about the higher education contribution scheme, so domestic students can enrol in Australian universities and they pay nothing at the time or they don't have to, and most of them just don't, but they pay it later. But the critical point is they pay in the future only when and if they're in a good financial situation. So it's very different from a normal loan. The thing about normal loans that I think um, is very problematic and would be very problematic for business at the moment uh, is that banks and even the government's concessional loans are are required to be repaid independently of the capacity of the enterprise to do so. And that's not how contingent debt works. In fact, it's a huge distinction. So with HEX, for example, if you graduate uh, but you don't earn anything for a while, maybe maybe you're on uh, another training system, maybe you're looking after an infant or an unwell parent, then you pay nothing. So people don't have to pay anything until they earn about $48,000. The revenue contingent loan for business would work just like that. So instead of a bank loan, the business would take the money and we've suggested, uh, it could be anything, but we've suggested let's start with $1,000 per fortnight and maybe keep JobKeeper in place for the businesses that still need it at 500 so the short-term financial situation for the enterprise is un- unchanged, then those kind of debts would be recorded. And then when things recover, and things will recover, but they, they're going to take a while, then we uh, argued or modelled the idea that 
the government would take 5% of revenue. And in all the examples that we've looked at, we looked at a whole range of different businesses, different business sizes, different number of employees, different expectations of future revenue, the debts of that order would all be paid within two or three years. Now, there's something really important about this. That means that the money will be coming in in the future when the government needs it to, and there won't be any, there won't be significant increases in the budget outlays uh, in the short run, and that will take the pressure off the budget in the future. The really critical point here is that this kind of debt is insurance. It means that businesses don't have to worry about bankruptcy from not being able to pay because they still don't have enough revenue. It means they don't have to be worried uh, about taking on new investment opportunities, for example, and thinking, my God, I won't get the money back. Uh, I'll have to repay a normal kind of loan. So they're kind of quite comfortable loans. I think they've got great capacity in all kinds of different areas. HEX was the beginning of what I, I, I think could be a template of a different way of thinking about government financing through contingent debt. Now, we've also thought a little bit about individuals as well and you could use contingent debt like the hex system for some of the very large number of people who have uh, who are now jobless but who who are not covered by JobKeeper. there are many casuals who have employment of less than one year with their current employer who didn't get any of the benefit from JobKeeper. So a very simple model, a very simple idea would be to say, if you're one of those people, we're going to give you a few thousand dollars now and we're going to take it off you, but only, only in the future and only when you can afford to do so. You wouldn't use the HEX collection parameters. Uh, you would use, it would be less generous than that, I think, maybe just say 5% of uh, annual revenue because many of these casuals will not have high incomes. They might be just part-time workers. But just uh, 5% of, say, $40,000, then you get the $2,000 back um, in a year. And you can do it, I think, almost costlessly to the budget. And that's the critical point uh, that, need, that really has to be motivating this kind of discussion. What, we, what can we do to help people in a temporary disaster uh, situation that is not going to add several hundred billion more to uh, future debt? A way to look at that then really is that it's almost like the state investing in those businesses or in those individuals on the basis, on the assessment that at some later point uh, they'll be sufficiently liquid to pay that, that they'll be in good health financially and they'll be able to pay that investment back. I think that's a very useful way of, of putting it. I mean, governments would be very averse to taking equity in the businesses because that means they become part owners. But this is so a, we've seen with uh, Virgin, yes. Yeah, which is completely easy to understand. But it is it is kind of it's a it's a concept of government managing risk, and governments do that all the time in all sorts of policy areas. Medicare is government managing health risks, basically superannuation, pension systems, road rules, a whole host of things that governments do are about risk management, and there are some. Um, illustrations on the financial side that are very importantly understood as something that only governments can do. HEX could not be run by the private sector because the private sector does not have the administrative machinery to collect. That's point number one. And point number two, 
the only agency that has the legal jurisdiction to know what a citizen's income or a business's revenue is, is the government. And that's it's a unique facility that governments have, which can be used, I think, in very propitious ways. And uh, uh, we've now got one. We've now got an un- unprecedented situation. I must say the word unprecedented, I've heard <laughs> un- unprecedented yes. times. Uh, but but that's, <laughs> that's, that's the situation we're in. So taking ideas like a revenue contingent loan, which no one would have thought of a few years ago for the short-term crisis, or extending HEX to people who didn't go to university because the situation is so poor, it can be done. The administrative costs of running the HEX system are close to close to nothing. And that's one of the great benefits of government involved in this area. So in your paper, you've uh, you've conceded that there are some details to be worked out. I think you call them wrinkles to be ironed out mm-hmm. uh, in this. Um, I, I, I can think of a, a couple. I'm not sure whether these are the same ones you're thinking of, but uh, how do you get around, for example, uh, the problem of a, a company that uh, builds up some significant quantum of money through this uh, revenue contingent loan process then decides to either buy either because it has to or because someone decides this is judicious way to act uh, to, uh, to 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 go to go broke and to rise phoenix like under a new name and yeah. what you know are they carrying the same debt i mean would there be that kind of uh, shenanigan going on well i mean there might be uh, and phoenix is i think is the current term but it used to be called bottom of the harbor but yes, but, but yes. think of it like this um, these are not these are not things that it's very advantageous to avoid hugely for a long time. We're talking five percent of revenue, and I'd also add the fairly important point that such activity is illegal. And if you're caught and the penalties are sufficiently high, there'll be I would just expect a lot of aversion to breaking law. They could do that now if they wanted to, but of course, there's no real point. This would, I think, you're right to say this might encourage that. But uh, many of these companies have been there for a very long time. To qualify for JobKeeper, uh, you needed to be at least there for one year. And I would think that you do need some rules. You need to say, well, we're trying to minimise the extent of non-repayment, so we'll allow this facility, but only for companies, businesses that have been around for, say, two or three years. Okay, a couple of other quick questions. How would bank banks look at that, that liability sitting on a company's books? Uh, would it affect their uh, tendency to lend to those uh, those organisations, those companies? Well, it might, but again, think of the size of this. We, we're talking 5% of revenue. So banks might actually like this kind of debt because it's going to allow some businesses to repay other debt, like commercial loans to banks, with greater ease because they, they don't have to repay this debt when things are not good. So it, it is kind of ambiguous that a bank might think of a, a, its own loan to a company as being a bit safer because the company will have resources when um, things are not good, as in right now, uh, and so there could be an insurance aspect as well. But the answer is I don't really know what the data would say about that. But I do keep on coming back to the notion that this is very this is very temporary. Five percent of annual revenue once things get close to normal. And John and I modelled it as 
half normal in the first year, you still get the money back very quickly. And could those repayments uh, lead to uh, when when they when the gov- when the company gets to a point of uh, sufficient uh, financial health to be liable for these repayments? Would that with that financial health otherwise were it not in that situation? And perhaps it wouldn't have this financial health, you know, absent these loans, of course. But uh, would that otherwise be used to, for example, expand workforce? So uh, could there be a, a lag effect on jobs growth uh, from in those companies? There could be. We didn't we didn't look at that, uh, Mark. But uh, our goal was to try and find ways that did not cost the budget a lot, which helped the businesses. And helping the business might mean that things are better for them down the track than they otherwise like, would Like being been. still alive. Well, for, <laughs> just to take one trivial example, yes. yes. Can I ask, Bruce, I mean, I can sort of see um, a line of critique that um, the government will lend uh, businesses all of this money but a certain portion of them will fail anyway and will be wasting money. What do you have to say to that? Yeah, that, that, what's well, kind of Mark's question of a few minutes ago and in all of these systems governments have to design these the instruments in a way that minimizes non-repayment and there will always be some non-repayment for example with the hex recovery recovers about 85 percent and so if we took that kind of ratio you would say well of course it's going to be a subsidy for non-repayment and we do our best to make sure that the system doesn't actually actively encourage non-repayment, but the, but there can be some subsidy involved in the non-repayment. That's why selection criteria are important. But I'll just say something else about this. Even though uh, if, if the government put a small surcharge on, like 10% on top of the loan, so we'll lend you 100000 but we expect 110000 to come back, that could be a way of covering the additional costs of the small proportion of firms that don't uh, that don't survive this. So there are ways of changing the parameters which might minimise the cost. A real interest rate, for example, not that interest rates matter at all in the current environment, they're so low, but you could add a real interest rate to it and or a surcharge. We used to have a surcharge with HEX, although it never looked like that. People got a discount for an upfront payment. And that was just a very blunt form of an, an interest rate, if you like, because mm. it just meant that anyone taking the money, taking the loan and repaying in the future would be paying uh, nominally a bit more. And you could do that with these type of loans. So, Bruce, of course, this is absolutely, uh, he's absolutely right. I totally agree with Bruce that there needs to be a pathway out of JobKeeper. Uh, there also needs to be a redesign of job seeker. So there's no doubt that looking for ways, and this is one really interesting way of, of doing that. I'm assuming that what Bruce is proposing is a temporary policy, not a permanent policy. Uh, I think that's what, I think that's that's what right. he said. Um, there are a couple of things to think about, about budgeting and about this risk role of government. Uh, I guess I tend to see the tax and transfer system as a whole as doing that job of managing risk. And it's a both more, it's a, it's a more collective role in the sense that it covers the population that is not directly affected by the crisis. So the income contingent loan approach would require, would lend the money, provide the money to those affected, of course, who, who've, who've had that 
suffered that downturn or lost that job uh, and then require that person to repay. What we do with the tax transfer system is that we, we raise those taxes from people uh, who are not negatively affected by the crisis as well as people who are uh, and we use that to redistribute to manage the risk for those who are negatively affected by the crisis. And so we draw on a kind of a broader population uh, and I wonder whether Bruce sees a role here for a more specific, you know, that specific income contingent loan. It's a kind of user pays but into the future. And, of course, the reason why we like that, why it works so well in HEX, is we have an assumption that people who go to university are going to be making higher incomes in the future. Uh, and on the whole, they do. The budgeting comment I have is that, of course, HEX is still appears in our budget, but it doesn't appear as an expenditure and as a tax. Where it appears is in assets, is on the balance sheet, uh, and the HEX debt outstanding is an asset, and the amount lost is a is a written-off debt or a liability of government. Uh, and so we don't see it, and it perhaps even undermines budget transparency a little. And we need to be clear to make to tell the population what this kind of Role loan actually is doing in the fiscal context. I understand and agree with what you're saying, Miranda, about the budget accounting arrangements. I don't think it matters too much that HEX is driven by an investment process. When you just think about the capacity for this kind of income contingent facility, let me give you um, another example. So Tim Higgins did a PhD from ANU, did a PhD on extending paid parental leave into a household contingent debt. I mean, at the moment, the government will give um, a new parent or a new mother, actually, 18 weeks of, of subsidy. 18 weeks is not very long. And if you really wanted a lot longer period to take time off work, say six months, it's very hard to afford it. And it comes down to something that's true also with the motivation for HECS, and that's market failure. You would be very unlikely, uh, unlikely that a bank would assist a, a new mother uh, who's just demonstrated that she doesn't plan on working in the paid labour force with a loan. So that market failure can be corrected, fixed by this kind of intervention. So I, I don't think of the contingent debt as directly part of the tax and transfer system. I think of it as something that the government is able to do because of the legal jurisdictions and the nature of collection of it that other agencies cannot do. And I think that there are also many other areas of government potential use of this instrument. Here's a good one, in my view, uh, drought relief. For a very long time, we've given a lot of money to farmers. Oh, it used to be grants, but now it's in uh, interest rate subsidies. But uh, that can be seen of as quite regressive. So Linda Bottle and I have modelled all this for farmers as well. And that's where the whole idea of revenue contingent loan for uh, businesses came up because, of course, farms are businesses. If you use revenue, you can actually give this facility to farmers permanently if you wanted to. I mean, you'd have to cap the debt. And it's basically the, the joy of it is basically saying to somebody, a citizen now or a business now, you know, in the future you're going to be fine. Would you like to take some money off yourself or your business but only when you're fine in the future and have it now? And that's how HEX works. 
You don't have to find the money for tuition now. You take it off yourself in the future. That's how the revenue contingent loan would work. That's how it would work with paid extensions of paid. But but, but going to Miranda's point about the, the judgment that's made about uh, – uh, higher education students and their income earning potential into the future, which by and large turns out to be, you know, a, a risk judgment that uh, that pays off. Uh, presumably, governments would need to be saying to those farms, looking at those farms very closely, and actually working out: Are they viable? Do they have a long term future? Are they going to reach uh, a uh, sufficient financial health so that they will be able to pay them back? Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. Uh where, you, where you're coming from with that. And it's it's critical that you put a cap on these debts. So if a farm is a fairly small one, say an annual revenue of 200000 you'd say, well, you can't have a million, but you can have like half of your typical annual revenue, say 100000 and then you cap it depending on, on history. And you don't want to give this to kind of the new entrants. But one of the benefits of doing it with farmers is that it becomes uh, – it has to be a debt of the of the property. It has to be a debt of the Australian uh, of the Australian business number. So it can't be transferred. So we spent a lot of time with rural accountants working out how this would work, and we believe they believe that there's almost no risk for the government if a you cap the debt and b you make it a, a debt of the property. So you can't give it to your child. You can't if you sell it. The debt goes with that. Uh, and you can't lease it either because without and gain anything from it. I also think that the Australian business number is why we use revenue. You don't want to use profits. You haven't really asked me about this, but I would like to tell you anyway. You don't really <laughs> Where you go. <laughs> Here I go. You don't want to use profits because they can be gained. Gained. You can move deductible allowances all over the place. And revenue is a legal requirement in the quarterly um, business state, business activity statement. You have to tell. And you can't actually deduct anything from it. It's used to collect the GST. So it's very hard for me to imagine that uh, normal kind of cunning mischievous behavior by firms could be uh, could be a way of avoiding any of this that's terrific bruce that these are fantastic and creative ideas which is what you'd expect out of a top university and uh, it's been a really terrific discussion today before we go um and you know of course you can contact us uh, via twitter at apps policy forum or at the facebook group policy forum pod now maria we've had some uh, feedback from some listeners, and uh, perhaps you can take us through a couple of those before we uh, finish today. Yes, we've had some lovely reviews. One from Luke from Wollongong, who says, I highly recommend uh, interesting speakers to break down politics for anyone who is mildly interested in it. So that means we're definitely casting a, a wide net there. And Elsie from Sandy Creek says, great podcast, been listening for a while, but for the first time today, I looked at the actual logo. And that is, of course, a reference to the Democracy Sausage uh, logo, uh, which actually does change in relation to whatever the episode is about each week. So you should you should be looking at that if you're not. The details. Put that down. That's indeed, and they they have great reviews. And we put that uh, that shifting logo and many other things that make this podcast possible down to Martin Pierce and his expert team uh, at Policy Forum. Exactly, Uh, we have great producers. We certainly do. Thank you uh, once again to uh, our guests, um, Miranda Stewart. 
Bruce Chapman, Maria Teflaga, as usual. Uh, it's been great having this discussion and we'll look forward to uh, talking to you, the listener, again next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.